0: 2 1 roll the footage Welcome back everybody I'm Simon Severino your host and today we talk the financial goodness that comes to us via crypto with Wharton MBA professor of business at Pepperdine creator of Ease Numbers financial projection software which has helped raise over 2 billion for thousands of startups. He worked on Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Planet of the Apes and many more movies and games and helped sell a visual effects company to James Cameron. He leads a double life, by day he is a CFO and by night he is into crypto and UFOs. Welcome everybody, Paul Hynek. When did you fall into the crypto rabbit hole? Uh, 2017.
1: um, I started advising a company that asked me to be an advisor about smart cities. And I told them, look, dude, you got sold a bill of goods. I don't know jack shit about smart cities, but I can help organize your advisory board. So I did. And they're a super cool company. They went dormant for a couple of years and came roaring back. And that's, you know, I've been aware of crypto before that, but I didn't have a personal involvement. I didn't have a personal
0: stake in the game. And ever since then, I've just been in love with it. That's pretty early. And uh, how was your your journey? You know, it, it it takes some people weeks, some people months, some people years. I'm on the years side. To really wrap their head around what's going on. What was your journey?
1: Well, yeah, kind of like waves of deeper recognition. And it really wasn't until last year when the sort of full cascade of not only, you know, the money that you could make by speculating or trading with crypto, but the fact that it represents, in my mind, a greater transformation than the Internet was. You know, there are 1.7 billion unbanked people in the world. They have been effectively shut out from the financial system. And then there's maybe 2 billion more that are essentially preyed upon with usurious interest rates. And we don't need banks anymore. We need wallets. And crypto is a way to get everybody a seat at the table. You know, Bitcoin is the best asset in the world. And unlike Manhattan real estate, which is very hard to buy if you're around the world, Anybody can buy Bitcoin
0: and preserve and enhance their wealth. This is what fascinates me. It's the first born global monetary system. We had national monetary system. And I wasn't thinking about this. For me, it was, oh, yeah, of course, a, a monetary system is, is done by my government. And now I'm realizing, wait a moment, that's one way of doing it. But a global currency is here, as you say, Manhattan, but everybody in India can buy a piece of land and the, and the, the value is there for everybody. How, how will this change the world we live in?
1: You know, uh, the Internet disintermediated the world. It allowed people to connect to each other directly with information and form their own tribes, regardless of where they were the crypto revolution is the same way, but with money. It's like, it's like the, an internet built out of money. So now we can all conduct business with each other around the world and not, not know each other, not trust each other and not need any third party, you know, taking a haircut out of the transaction.
0: This is so big that it it's still hard for me to to wrap my yeah. head around me. And just today was so you, you have worked with Cameron and with the biggest people in the in the movie industry. I've just yeah. seen a crypto project called render where they want to yeah. do decentralized rendering. So everybody can do yeah. this kind of art yeah. on their iPad. How, how will this change the entertainment um, industry?
1: And, and Render is a great project, by the way. And, and that's what's really interesting about crypto. You know, I mentioned about like sort of pricing, you know, making money on Bitcoin, but it's really the decentralization. That's the the, the central ethos of crypto. So instead of having a company like Facebook make all the money from the creator's content, Now, you'll have a crypto decentralized equivalent of Facebook where the money goes to the creators. And this really goes back to Napster, which tried to disrupt the music industry and take the money away from the pirate music labels. So now I think we're going to have all sorts of companies of crypto projects that are equivalents of terrestrial, traditional, centralized companies. And so it's not only going to Disrupt banks and make banks go away, but it's going to change how we look at companies and then I think governments too, because these are transparent, fair, voted upon, mathematically guaranteed contracts. You know, people ask, Well, what's behind Bitcoin? How do I know it won't crash to zero? Well, I have a lot more confidence in a mathematically guaranteed contract that is powered by millions of computers. Than I do in a government like mine in the U.S. that is printing money like drunken Australian
0: sailors. <laughs> I I was googling yesterday, literally yesterday, how can I run a Bitcoin note, and I yeah. realized it's not that complicated. Everybody can do it, and then you see it. So you see what it is, and yeah. what a layer one is, and what a layer two is, and and you yeah you lose all these anxieties and um it becomes tangible and um and and i, I i'm fascinated by what's what's going on uh, and also i'm thinking how will companies be transformed by it should we all start a DAO? i'm watching this daos coming up and um right. Right. will will all companies soon be distributed you're starting to see equivalents of everything. Like you mentioned
1: Render. Uh, there's a Facebook equivalent. I just saw one called DRIFE, D-R-I-F-E, which is the decentralized version of Uber and Lyft. Wow. And I think people will naturally gravitate to those companies or to the, I don't even know if you can call it a company now. Let's say a project, which is the crypto parlance, because the drivers in that entity will get more money and they'll have more of a say in the governance of of what they do. I
0: I am right now in twenty Discord groups, in fifteen DAOs, etc. Because I want to see and learn from the frontier world. Because yeah. sometimes, and and I think this will be the way people work in the future. Now you are a CFO. I am a CEO. I think these are old models. My kids they might be in 15 DAOs. So they are in 15 projects. They have no strong affiliation. They have like 15 week project-based affiliations. Yeah. They they come into Slack. Nobody says hello. They pull tasks and then they get paid by a smart contract. It might be a complete different world.
1: Yeah. And I think that gets to the sort of what we call the gig economy, right? Where, the notion of working for one company for your whole life and then waiting to relax and retire and getting uh, you know, a barca lounger chair and a gold watch for your 50 years of service is just becoming ridiculous. In my class at Pepperdine, I teach the students, look, you cannot regard, you cannot count on one company to pay your money, to pay your rent or your mortgage. You need a second income. That's sort of the first step to financial freedom. Then after a second income, you should have passive income. So it's not an equation of how much time you spend and the money that you make. And then you need to go, you know, all in on crypto, I think. And, and you know, I want to get to the point where I don't even have a bank account. I want to have all my money in various crypto and stable coins as well. And then when I need to make a purchase on earth, it will translate instantly into filthy lucre fiat currency for that tawdry transaction, and then go back into the safe, happy place of crypto.
0: I literally think that my bank will be something like Celsius or Abra, something where yep. I have my Bitcoin on, I lend against yep. it, and yep. um, and uh, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm showing to my friends. Look, I am the bank now. I yep. own it, and I can lend it. And they go, no, Simon, where's the catch? Where's the catch? I get, there is no catch. It works. And I try to explain the mechanics, but nobody listens to me. Does anybody listen to you? (laughs) It it takes, I've seen a sea change.
1: You know, I've been evangelizing for crypto for a while. In the last six months, people have come to me who six months ago, a year ago, were saying, I I don't get it. It's too volatile. Uh, Silk Road, all this kind of stuff about Bitcoin and all that. And now they're coming to me saying, where do I buy it? I mean, it's happening that quickly. And you can see that sort of, you put your finger on the pulse and we're at that turning point. It's like the internet in 1997. There were, there were about 100 million users then for the internet, about 100 million users now for crypto. And crypto is growing twice as fast as the internet. And what's really interesting from a sort of hardcore quantitative point of view is that the trend is that there will be a billion users of crypto by 2025. And this is a network. And because of, you know, with Metcalf's law, a network doesn't have a linear appreciation in value as it grows. It's exponential. So if the user base of crypto grows 10x over the next three or four years, it's really quite reasonable to assume that the value will increase perhaps 100x.
0: How do you see the regulatory risk? Uh, is the SEC, the CFC, etc., or CFTC, right for commodities, and SEC for securities? Yeah, are they gonna say yes to Bitcoin and no to everything else, or what's your take?
1: Yeah, I mean, if I was the U.S. government and I had fallen in love with my own fiat currency spigot, to use Robert Breedlove's phrase, I would be worried about it too because they have the ability to print as much money as they want. And those days are coming to an end. And it's gonna be a hard financial reckoning of either gonna be hyperinflation or re-pegging the value of the dollar. Both are painful. One is quick and one is slow, or one is drawn out. They are, with the infrastructure bill, they are trying to introduce some regulation in the United States. But you know the, the calculus for them is, it's kind of like alcohol in the 1920s. Yeah, they, they can outlaw it, but they can't stop it. And it, the more that they regulate it and stifle growth of development in the US, the more they drive it offshore and the more that other countries will profit from it. China made a huge tactical mistake, I think, in driving their miners offshore because for, you know, their rationale was that crypto was a way for money to leak out of the economy. Um For us in the U.S., the U.S. is kind of neurotic. It's perhaps a slightly fading superpower in terms of its dominance in the world. And whenever you start losing power, you get neurotic and you make irrational, impulsive actions to try to keep your power. And I think we'll see some flailing around in the dark in terms of regulation. But by and large, most of the regulation will be good because it will establish guardrails and make it safer for corporations
0: to put money in proof of work or proof of stake or will both be around and there's other models too right so
1: i think they all have a place you know bitcoin is the perfect store of value as a transactional currency eh you know it's already you know ancient in the eyes of crypto development um but they're both as long as the the rules are laid out clearly and can't change, it's almost immaterial to me about the the proof method.
0: Hmm. What are how do you structure your portfolio? If if you want to share like your general logic yeah. or even the assets. Sure. So, until recently,
1: it was twenty five percent Bitcoin, twenty five percent Ethereum, and fifty percent. Altcoin Playland, right? Uh, some of them very, very top tier, and other ones more moonshots. But my portfolio has gotten upended by the resurgence of the company named XYO that I advised back in the day. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a nice way to have your portfolio upended. So I don't know how much I'll rebalance that, but still going forward, to me, Bitcoin is the safe zone. It's like that board game, sorry where you go around the edges, and if you get your man in the middle, he's safe, that's where the money winds up. It's the financial roach motel. Money goes in and never comes out because you can get interest on it, you can borrow against it. As you mentioned, Simon, you never, ever, ever take your money out of Bitcoin. All the other coins, the money I have in other coins is because I think they will appreciate faster than Bitcoin in the short term. And because I believe in the project and I wanna support them, But long term, all that money wants to go to the safe place in Bitcoin.
0: And what happened with Ethereum? They want to upgrade since years. Yeah, next year, next year, next year. Is it still the the DeFi vehicle? Uh, Yeah, there's
1: other great ones, too, Um, you know, that are the, uh, you know, the, the supposed ETH killers like Cardano, which I like quite a lot and Solana and Polkadot. DeFi is so big that they can all do quite well. And I think Ethereum will be that foundational layer. And then the other ones will sort of specialize a little bit more into different niches. Um, But I'm super bullish on Ethereum. There's a lot of tokenomics, you know, in terms of becoming a little bit more deflationary and the circulating supply is going down. Um, The gas fees are quite high. But those will come down, and over time, Ethereum, I think, will,
0: will have the flippening and have a higher market cap than Bitcoin. I am getting a ton of questions. Hey, Simon, look at this APY. It's 70,000. How can yes. I not go in there? What would you say to this kind of questions? Yeah, you got to be careful because that, that's where you start to get
1: to the rug pull territory, as you said um and the other thing that happens with that super high staking is that that apy goes down as more people go in so it's dynamic um i think look that's kind of like if if you are risk averse you already view crypto as sort of the riskier fringes of your portfolio i think it should be the other way around i think any money that you have in dollars where you're going to take a guaranteed 15 20 haircut on actual inflation because the the, you know, the inflation markers, the market basket, eggs and milk and all that, it doesn't count assets and tuition and healthcare. So the risk is the dollar. But if you have your money in crypto, the more riskier fringes, if you don't understand the dynamics are NFTs, which are really can go up and down and the super high APY plays because you just don't know what's gonna happen with that. I have some money in those and it's it's kind of intoxicating to watch it grow, It's not sustainable over the long term. And, you know, the average annual return of the stock market in the U.S. has been about 10%. And with a timeframe of 20 years or more, that's enough to make you wealthy. That's what you get from interest in some companies on your Bitcoin. So your interest on the best appreciating asset in the world is 10%. That's already pretty exciting. The more higher APYs you go for, the more risk, the more uncertainty you're going to face.
0: You have one more passion, which is frontier, which is studying UFOs. How did that happen? (laughs) Well, I don't know
1: life without UFOs. Um, My father was a professor of astronomy and astrophysicist and was asked by the Air Force in the 1940s to help them study flying saucers. And he thought, well, that's all of a weekend's work. Okay, I'm just gonna poo poo them all. And he wound up being there uh, as a side hustle for 20 years. And he came to feel not to believe, because I don't think scientists traffic in the word believe, but he came to accept the weight of the accumulated data that there is a bona fide phenomena going on. And now that's become much clearer in the last few years with a more open stance. On various organs of the United States government. So he became the foremost authority from a scientific point of view on UFOs. He made he had the insight that he wasn't studying UFOs, but he was studying UFO reports. Now, for an astrophysicist, that propels you into the uncomfortable, touchy-feely zone of psychology, as opposed to nuts and bolts and you know Kepler's laws. So to do to do that successfully, he came up with a classification system of close encounters of the first, second, and third kind to help scientists around the world have a sort of a common rubric to, to examine the phenomena. Spielberg made the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind based on my father's work, bought the title from him, gave him a cameo role, and he was an advisor to the movie. And then you know, he went around the world and investigated UFOs, Always trying to bring mainstream science to take a good, honest look at a really strange phenomena.
0: So we are not the only species in the universe. so they're they're slightly different questions.
1: Um, I think overwhelmingly, there is life elsewhere in the universe, and life as we would recognize it, because if there is no life elsewhere, it's a lot of overkill. And if life can develop here, Why can't it develop somewhere else? It just seems it boggles the mind to me that there wouldn't be life elsewhere. That said, I don't necessarily believe that UFOs represent aliens from other planets. To me, that seems rather implausible. So I believe in UFOs, but I don't know if I believe in aliens from other planets visiting us.
0: What is the definition of UFO?
1: Unidentified flying object. So it doesn't talk about the origin. It just says, we don't know what it is. And it's it's more than you see something on a camping trip at night and you don't understand it. It has to rise to the level of an expert understanding the star charts, what kind of weather balloons or flights there may have been in the area for it to really count as uh, a bona fide UFO.
0: And so life is one thing. And what about consciousness outside of uh, uh, our Terrestrial one.
1: Yeah. So that's a fascinating topic. Um, I was on a panel at a UFO conference, uh, on this weekend, talking about consciousness and how reducible it is. And I'm a big fan of Ray Kurzweil and the singularity and the idea of immortality. You know, um, I have the, the, I can make the claim that I have the most documented success in history in reversing my age. And it's been published in a medical journal. And so I want to live forever, okay? I've already beaten taxes in a way, and now I want to beat death. So to do that though, there's a lot of different steps. And I can tell you about the particular things I've done, Mm -hmm. but the ultimate goal, even if you make everything in your body brand new, you can still get hit by a bus. you can still die so to be functionally immortal you need to upload your consciousness to a zip drive or something from which you can then download it again into other substrates that's when you become immortal and so the really tough part um, about life extension and perhaps space travel is really that decoupling of consciousness from your synthetic substrate, whether that's remote viewing and exoskeleton ship, uh, leaving your body or uploading it. It's a pretty interesting challenge and it's something that fascinates me.
0: And it happens all the time, right? When we come into the body and when we leave the body. So how far are we technologically to yeah, to make it repeatable, affordable?
1: Well, <clears throat> that's a good question. Um, Going back to Ray Kurzweil, he originally thought that the singularity, which is in the context of artificial intelligence, is the point at which artificial intelligence becomes self-aware and recursively self-improving. What happened in 2045, he now thinks it will happen in 2036. And if that happens, that means kind of like in the movie Her, which was a good visualization of how fast that would happen we can't imagine what life would be like there is no movie or science fiction book that has come close to portraying what it would be like at that point we would have the power of the 2035 internet embedded in our brain and we could turn inert matter like the moon into a calculation engine we could do time i don't time travel i don't know but we could do space travel Anything that you can imagine we could do, Um, molecular level desktop printing. You could make anything that you want from any substance with a recipe and some water and dirt. So at that point, the limitations we have on uploading and sharing consciousness would no longer exist.
0: Wow. There is a lot in that sentence. I will have to re-listen to this episode (laughs) to digest it. And, and it's exciting and it makes sense. It's also scary. There's, um,
1: I don't know if you've seen the show black mirror.
0: A a couple episodes, but I was sleeping so bad after it, I stopped.
1: Okay. So the one episode that I love is called the USS Callister, and it's a fantastic episode that kind of starts off as a parody of star Trek, but it really delves into the dark side of uploading and downloading consciousness and, you know, if your consciousness is downloaded, but not under your control. So it's, you know, we're facing a future of high risk and high return
0: was consciousness ever in my control.
1: So that, you know, you know, Sam Harris. Yeah. So Sam Harris has a, it's kind of like an essay about free will, and he makes the point that, okay, Simon, predict your next thought. I can't. You, you can't. We're, we're sort of used to thinking of emotions as something that we don't really control. We try to harness, but we like to think of our thoughts as our own purview. But if you can't predict your next thought, why do you think you control your next thought? Exactly. And there are experiments that show that if you have an EKG hooked up and you have the choice to press a red or blue button, there's a chemical signal that fires in your brain to press which button before you are consciously aware of it. Mm. and that Your consciousness is sort of invited in given advance notice before the rest of the world, but that it's not really you doing that. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea that we are all completely free will takes a bit of a hit. And the other thing that, that sort of interferes with that notion is the growing recognition of the influence of all the bacteria inside us on our behavior. So we've got 1 trillion cells in our body. We have 10 trillion bacterial cells. Mm. So in yeah. essence, we are a walking vehicle for a bunch of freeloading bacteria. We are 10 times as much bacteria as we are we, and we're just starting to to nibble at the edges of understanding how much they influence. So if bacteria influences us, if our decisions are at least partially chemically based, how much free will is left i don't think we are chemical bacteria automatons but i think there's some kind of middle ground there where if we understand better the bacteria and the chemical signals we can probably navigate ourselves to a place of enhanced free will understanding that you know going back to your consciousness to me the best definition of consciousness which is sort of the root level is that you have an awareness of the environment and ability to adapt. And that's what we have done. And I think humans, we have sort of grafted upon that sort of basic and, you know, responding to the environment with an emergent property of higher level consciousness, and that's what's most fascinating about
0: us. I'm curious if this ties also to our first topic. Because some parts of our body are centralized systems, and some systems in our body are really distributed autonomous systems. The bacterial system is fully autonomous, the digestive system fully autonomous, Uh, we don't think we don't do digestion, right? And uh, we don't even trigger it, we cannot do it faster or slower. Other parts, like the heart, they get a direct centralized impulse. And if that's misses, we need a surge. uh, We we need to to input it again. It's it's an electric stimulus. Now pump. Now don't pump. Now pump. Right. Um. So do we have DAOs? Are we are we partially DAOs? Yeah, that's that's I hadn't thought
1: of that, but that's that's a great analogy, Simon. I I worked with USC on a fascinating project. Uh, for stroke recovery technology. And they brought us in to apply a virtual reality environment. So if you've had a stroke and let's say your left arm is paralyzed, you come into the room, you put on the VR goggles, and now you see a virtual arm floating in the air. And the goal is they have both EKG and um, EMGs on your arm. The goal is to see if the motor cortex now, in a stroke, your muscles are still intact. What's happened is the electrical circuit between the centralized area, the motor cortex in the brain, and the decentralized sensory nervous nerves in the arm has been broken. So the motor cortex in the brain says, look, I'm not sending any signals to the arm to move because I don't know where it is. I don't know what direction it's going. It's too dangerous. So the motor cortex says, nope, I'm not going to do that. So the arm is paralyzed. So in our, in our experiments, what we do is you, you're watching in VR, you see a virtual representation of your arm. Now, the arm will move a little bit and it's picking up the signals that the motor cortex is sending. And the motor this real time feedback for the brain is very interesting. The motor cortex says, hey, that's interesting. I'm getting some kind of feedback from the arm. Let's play with this a little bit. So it sends very faint signals, which are enough for the VR representation of your arm to move, then we hired a sound designer to create a feedback sound that your arm is moving towards the target position. So it's like, duh, 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 and when you get there, there's a phase lock, whoosh, and a bird lands on your arm. And it's a very simple, success based feedback loop for the brain. You do that again and again, the motor cortex, the centralized function in the brain says, hey, this is working out pretty well. I'm going to start sending stronger signals and by doing that again and again it reboots the dormant sensory nerve impulse system and the function is restored.
0: Wow. And I think I have I've read also about phantom limbs which is maybe the same thing on the opposite side it's when that loop is still there even even if if you 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 lose your arm and Yeah,
1: uh, and that's, right, that's a, that's the same thing and that could be the motor cortex with with legacy uh signals or trailing signals coming in but even like painkillers mm-hmm. if you have pain in your hand you take a painkiller all that does is stop the sensory nerves from coming mm-hmm. to your brain it's not stopping the pain and phantom limbs again it's just a it's a bug of the system that's not used to not having that limb and it doesn't know what to do with maybe trailing sensory nerve impulses or the motor cortex is trying to
0: compensate for that. Fascinating. These Both uh, crypto and all these disruptive things are giving us so much chance to understand ourselves better. And uh, it's fascinating. Paul, where can people dig deeper and uh, and find you and read more about your work?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I have a really anemic social media footprint. Um, I have a Twitter account, which I don't use very much. I don't really have a website. So, yeah, good luck. I don't know. <laughs> and who should be my next guest? Yeah, you know, I thought about that. Um, I would say because, you know, Michael Saylor, I'm
0: sure. Oh, yeah. He, he brought right. me into this into this okay. whole spiel.
1: Right. So I don't need to mention him. I would say Greg Fay, who is one of the brightest medical minds in the world. Now I mentioned my life extension success, and that's based on his work. Um, So he did a trial under the aegis of the Stanford Neuroscience Institute to regrow the thymus gland. The thymus is behind your breastplate. It's what creates the T cells, which are Mm. thymus-enabled cells, which are your white blood cells, which are functional your immune system. Every human Once you're 20 years old, your thymus starts to shrink. So your immune system gets progressively weaker, but in this trial, the first trial ever approved by the FDA to combat aging as a whole, as opposed to this or that disease, it was proven to regrow the thymus and to turn back the clock on overall systemic biological aging and was published in a medical journal And I was in that trial and for whatever reason I had the best success. So that's how I can say I have the most documented success in age reversal. I'm now the CFO work on that. And this guy, Greg Faye, who's the mad genius behind this is absolutely brilliant. And I think he'd be a fascinating guest to talk about. He knows everything about life extension and the body and preserving cells after death. Um, Just a brilliant guy.
0: Paul, you inspired me and many here. Thank you so much for generously sharing your wisdom, your journey with us. Please come back soon. Sure. Happy to. My pleasure, Simon. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals
1: with one-on-one Sprint Coach. We double your revenue in 90 days.